Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My late mother was of the opinion that her father's people were Scottish because of the way they spoke English. She was both right and wrong. The Bradshaws had ultimately the roots in Scotland going back in time. But when my mother knew them in the 1920s, 30s and 40s, they were County Antrim people through and through, from places called Ballywatermoy, Craigs, Ahaboy, Killymurish. Originally carpenters and small farmers, they had, in the shape of my great-grandfather, moved into business selling household goods through the length and breadth of the northern counties, doing well enough to set up an establishment just off Belfast Shaftesbury Square, J.R. Bradshaw, Wholesale Glass and China Merchants. I recall seeing with a heightened sense of surprise the name above the double-fronted store as a very young boy. But back to the Scottish business. During the Second World War, her parents now separated, my mother and her brother were evacuated from North Belfast to their father's people in County Antrim, to a place called Creavery. After the initial shock of two city kids readjusting to farm life and country school, they settled down and would welcome their mother's occasional visits, dressed, as always, to the 99s, and often accompanied with her friends, as well as the current boyfriend, a chauffeur. Decades later, I'd still hear my mother recounting some of the spoken English of that time as a teenager in the early 1940s. Fernenst, Thole, Gurning. What she hadn't quite realised was the language of her father's people and the way they spoke English in the villages and hilly townlands wasn't Scottish, though it sounded like that to her much-travelled yet young urban ears, but Ulster Scots. When her parents, Ethel and Norman, had married, they both began moving clear of their different families, with their own separate lexicons and pronunciations, and entering a familiar world of English, inflected by local nuance, of course, but no longer moored to their inherited places. They were forming a vernacular of their own, shaped by lives lived in London, Toronto, and eventually by the return to Belfast. So, living in the countryside as evacuees must have been a bit of a shock, for sure, to their two cosmopolitan children. One day, it must have been about 1960 or 61, I was in town accompanying my mother on a shopping trip. It would have been a Saturday for sure. And we were in, memory tells me, the newly opened CNA store in downtown Belfast. She was perusing the various clothes racks, when a woman came up to her and said, Hello, and introduced us to her daughter, before asking my mother how things were. Ethel, my grandmother, had died recently, and the solicitude was apparent even to the young fellow I then was, eight or nine. From their manner of speaking, the comfortably dressed woman and daughter, I soon realised, were relatives from Antrim. They spoke with a calm and intimate inflection, almost an elevated tone, too. I wandered off just as the girl was asked to give me a sweet, which I took without thinking anything of it. 
It was, however, distasteful, a lozenge or drop, with a bitter quasi-medical flavour. When the conversation returned to my mother and her recent loss, I magicked the sweet out of my mouth, but bereft of what to do next, I placed it as unobtrusively as possible within the pocket of a nearby impressive woollen coat and tried not to think about it ever again. I don't think we ever met those folks again either. Certainly, I have no recollection of visiting houses in the villages of Antrim or the amazing glens. All I recall of that Scottish connection was the family name above the store in Belfast, now long gone, and the remnants of a language caught in the intimacies of familiar words handed down, and the tone of voices, and, of course, that dire lozenge. Apologies to whoever bought that fine coat sixty-odd years ago. I still shudder to think about how they brought it home, only to find that unwelcome gift dissembling within the pocket of their brand new winter coat. I usually wear a lot of green in the month of March, not just because of St. Patrick's Day, but also because it's Pakistan's National Day on March the 23rd, a day that's still celebrated in addition to Independence Day in August. Green is the national colour of both countries, and I've always loved it. I wear it for my Irish mother and for my father and his parents who started as Indians but became Pakistanis in 1947. It was at midnight between August the 14th and 15th, 1947, that India's independence was declared, that the country was partitioned and Pakistan was created. At that time, my Irish mother Brenda and my Indian father Said, who had first met in Trinity College Dublin in the late 1930s, and had married in Delhi in 1946, had just conceived their first and only child, me. Said had qualified from Trinity's Veterinary College and was working in the Indian Civil Service in the Department of Agriculture and Veterinary Science. Brenda had studied what was called mental and moral science, now generally called philosophy and psychology, and they had every intention of staying in Delhi. Said had major reservations about the idea of Pakistan as a Muslim state for a Muslim people, and he had high hopes that India would be the modern secular state envisaged by Gandhi and others. But then his whole family suddenly became refugees, fleeing for their lives from the small town of Batala near Amritsar in northern India, when the state of Punjab was divided in two. They were Muslims on the wrong side of the border who, like many thousands of others, had to flee to Pakistan. My Indian grandparents were among the lucky refugees who lost everything except their lives. Thousands didn't survive. The mass murder and mass migration that took place in 1947-48 was due to what my father called the awful partition, 
with Muslims fleeing across the new borders into East or West Pakistan and Hindus fleeing the other way into India, with a great deal of sectarian killing taking place in the process. My grandparents lost their much-loved home in 1947 to a big crowd of Sikhs who ransacked it and took all they could from it. My father was terribly shocked and distressed, partly because in Dublin, just a few years earlier, one of his closest friends had been a Sikh. My father's parents ended up in a small town on the other side of the border that divided the Punjab. It was called Montgomery, named after Sir Robert Montgomery, a Donegal man, who'd been the Lieutenant General of the Punjab from 1859 to 1865. That town is now called Sahiwal. So I can just imagine my parents' dilemma. Should they stay in the relative comfort of Delhi or migrate to the new state of West Pakistan and try to be some help to my father's family? I think they really felt they had no option and they migrated in late 1947 to Pakistan. So, as one friend of mine said when I told her this story, I was a migrant before I was even born. I've always regretted not asking my parents exactly when the three of us, me still safely in my mummy's tummy, migrated to Karachi, which was then the capital of the newly created state of West Pakistan. But it must have been before the end of January 1948, because recently I discovered a copy of an article my mother wrote for an Irish pacifist publication just after the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi on January the 31st, 1948. The address on the covering letter from my mother was that of our small house in Karachi, where I spent my first 11 years. I was born in early April 1948, so every March, especially on the 23rd, Pakistan Day, I'd think of my mother, heavily pregnant, shortly to give birth to what may have been the first ever Irish Pakistani baby. And then I think of our little house in Karachi, full of refugee relatives, trying to help with the cooking and minding this odd little baby to show their gratitude for the shelter they were being given. Meanwhile, I think my father must have been struggling a bit both to help his family and also in his job in the newly created Pakistan Civil Service. He found himself quite unpopular for at least three reasons. He hadn't been a fighter for the nationalist Muslim cause. In Ireland, I suppose he would have been called a Johnny-come-lately or something worse. He had a very high level of Western education, whereas most of his counterparts would have stayed in the Indian civil or public service. And worst of all, of course, he had a white wife, assumed to be British, even though she was Irish. I often marvel at the fact that despite all the difficulties surrounding them, my parents managed to surround me with so much love and happiness. I asked why so many people were sleeping on the streets and under the bridges of the Hub River near our house in Karachi, and they tried and tried to explain. Then I said I would love to learn to swim, so they taught me that at a very early age. And like my mother, I loved horses, and she managed to get me a little Shetland pony called Titch. And I grew up listening to Paul Robeson and being told I was mighty like a rose. <laughs> so yes, because of my parents and because of my own mixed memories and origins, I wear a lot of green in March. But this year, as well as green, I'm wearing the colours that make green when they're mixed. 
blue and yellow, the colours of the Ukraine flag, in sympathy with all the thousands of today's refugees. I need to keep away from fruit. Black currants to describe Cabernet Sauvignon. Grapefruit for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Plums for Merlot. Pineapple for Australian Chardonnay. People like me who write about wine spend a ridiculous amount of time thrashing around in a massive fruit salad of words. In the winter we have some hope of keeping this malaise half under control. The sort of red wines that slip down well on a chilly December evening may be spicy, peppery, leathery, meaty, savoury or just plain warming. But in summer, the greengrocer's lexicon threatens to run away with itself again. The bottles that seem most alluring waft out aromas of soft fruits. The Viognier in my fridge smells of peaches and apricots. The rosé you're planning to uncork when the sun shines is strawberry-scented. And that Pinot Noir to go with lamb chops. Wow! Raspberries, cherries, summer herbs. They're all in there with a tiny hint of well-hung game or the garden compost heap if you want to be absolutely accurate about it. The app for the Concise Oxford English Dictionary lists 153 edible fruits every one of which has probably been pressed into service by a wine writer. How did it come to this? Suddenly enough, as it happens. In the 1970s, Anne Noble, a sensory researcher in the Department of Viticulture and Enology at the University of California, Davis, began to develop what she later termed an aroma wheel. Her idea was to provide a common vocabulary which wine tasters everywhere could use in their assessments, because up to that time, Wine had no clearly defined language. One quadrant of the wheel features fruity aromas. There are 11 other segments, the most familiar covering wine smells that are floral, spicy, herbaceous, nutty, caramel, woody or earthy. A smallish red area labelled microbiological includes unnerving characteristics like mousy, horsey and sweaty. A quadrant labelled chemical lists a clatter of scientific terms. Ethanol, ethyl acetate, mercaptan, sulphur dioxide, as well as immediately off-putting ones like skunk. While winemakers soon adopted all of this brave new wine vocabulary, wine writers focused mainly on Professor Noble's fruity, floral and spicy terminology. One of them was so influential that within a few years, the fruit-laden approach had become the norm. In 1978, a wine-obsessed young American lawyer called Robert Parker launched The Wine Advocate, a magazine that would help him to achieve decades of recognition as the world's most powerful wine critic. Parker wanted to write about wines in a positive, vivid way. He launched into the new vocab with gusto, 
and readers lapped up his lavish tasting notes for 40 years. Here he is describing a gigondas. Loads of blueberry, blackberry and blackcurrant fruit intermixed with some licorice, camphor, graphite and spring flowers. A bit overblown, you might think, and I do too. But in the world of wine, anybody with a nose and palate insured for a million dollars has tended to have popular opinion on their side. In the old days, I mean before about 1970, wines were described in broader and sometimes bolder terms. Deep colour and big shaggy nose, the English wine writer Gerald Asher wrote in the 1960s about a Nuit Saint-Georges. Rather a jumbly, untidy sort of wine, with fruitiness shooting off one way, firmness another and body pushing around underneath. It will be as comfortable and as comforting as the 1961 Nuit Saint-Georges once it is pulled in its ends and settled down. I love that. Not a word about cherries or raspberries, the labels pinned to young red burgundies these days. A few years ago, while I was running a summer wine appreciation course, the usual fruit basket of descriptors became so wearisome that I paired my students off and asked them to compare two wines with reference to some sphere of life far removed from food or drink. The results were electrifying. One pair likened the wines to music by two very different composers, Mozart and Wagner, as far as I remember. Another, led by a Dublin estate agent, saw them as houses, one fancily done up but banal, the other neglected but oozing character. Then it was the turn of a suave gastroenterologist from the West. Before he could speak, his teammate declared she had no part in the description he was about to present and took extreme exception to it. On he ploughed regardless. The first wine was a mistress, he said, seductive. Irresistible, actually, but maybe a little bit flashy and eventually tiresome. The second wine, subdued but with more lasting appeal, was the faithful wife at home. The room erupted into outrage. The gastroenterologist was ostracised and we relapsed into safe, fruit-driven language the next day. My mother was 70 and couldn't be happier. We were boarding an Aer Lingus flight from Budapest to Dublin. I held up our boarding passes to a member of the cabin crew, an Irish lady of impeccable style and demeanour. My mother is visiting me in Ireland for the first time. She's never flown before, I ventured. Immediately, the flight attendant's smile broadened. She greeted my mother warmly, and I translated. My mom was beaming. We hadn't taken off yet, but she was uplifted already. At cruising height, 
the same crew member checked on us regularly and at one point discreetly slipped us two tiny bottles of Jamison, saying, this is a special occasion. Although travelling economy, mother felt like a VIP. I explained to her about the Cade Mille Folche. I wanted this trip to be a real treat for my mother, a break from her domestic routine and a sort of celebration of time spent together. But I needed to keep her to her doctor's orders too. My mother, a lover of good food all her life, now has weight issues and sees a diabetes specialist. She's under strict instructions to take sweeteners instead of sugar in her daily coffees. In my new role as chaperone, I knew I'd have my work cut out. I'd planned an itinerary for my mom's visit to show her some of my favorite spots. Whenever we needed a break, we'd find a cozy cafe. We'd rest our feet while sipping a coffee, always accompanied by a nice pastry. I know the blood sugar. Pastry is a no-no. I had to make allowances, though. Our time together was to be special. After all, celebration and eating are synonyms in my mom's dictionary. And I like my food, too. The first time we sat down to savor some coffeehouse treat, my mother nonchalantly reached for the sugar bowl over her steaming cappuccino. When I quizzed her about the sweeteners, oh, she said with the most innocent of expressions, I forgot to bring them. I watched silently as she dropped two sugar cubes into her cup. This battle may be lost, but the war is not over yet, I thought. Over coffee the next day, my mom, in the full flow of conversation, surreptitiously reached for the sugar bowl. Catching my eye, she looked penitent and explained she'd forgotten the sweeteners again. Isn't it lucky I didn't forget? I said, proffering the packet of sweeteners across the table. My mother wasn't at all impressed by my thoughtfulness. One day, we took the diet to Bray. There was a small fish and chip shop on the seafront that I wanted to introduce to my mother. Most Hungarians only eat fish as part of the traditional Christmas dinner once a year. However, mother and I have always been fish aficionados. Even so, for many years I had no idea what real fresh seawater fish tasted like. I'll never forget the first time I ate fish and chips in this part of the world. Actually, it wasn't in this part of the world. It was out of this world. It was a revelation, the whitest, softest fish meat I'd ever bitten into. No strong aroma, no bones, no fuss. It was a meal worthy of three Michelin stars, coming from a takeaway chipper. To build up some appetite first, we walked around Bray and up and down the promenade. Coming from landlocked Hungary, Mother couldn't get enough of the sea. She enthused about the fresh sea air and the breathtaking views. It was just an ordinary Irish day, I told her, with an overcast sky and a strong breeze coming in from the greyish-looking sea. But inside, 
I was proud of my adopted country. At one point, my mother stopped in her tracks and said, What a beautiful place Ireland is. Do the Irish know how lucky they are to live here? And you haven't even tried their fish and chips yet, I thought, secretly smiling to myself. Eventually, the time came for the culinary sensation of the day. I queued at the unassuming takeaway for two portions of fried cotton chips with garlic mayo and we sat on a bench to eat them. I watched my mom take the first bite of the fish, waiting for her verdict. Quite unusually for her, she was totally speechless. Her features softened. She had an air of peace and contentment about her. She was tuning into the awe-inspiring first experience. Delicious, isn't it? I said, trying to cajole words out of her. She nodded silently, as if reluctant to take time out of the fine dining to verbally formulate an opinion. When she finished, not a single crumb remained. Suddenly, I remembered long-forgotten conversations we'd had about her childhood. My mother was a war child. Growing up in war-torn Hungary, she and her siblings often starved. Years later, as a mother, she was determined that no members of her own family would ever go hungry. I grew up behind the Iron Curtain in a household of well-stocked fridges, freezers and pantries. For my mother, food equals not just celebration, but also love. On her return flight to Budapest, mother was on the lookout for the same flight attendant. She wasn't on board, but my mother was happy nonetheless. From Ireland, she was taking with her the fondest of memories. Great food, breathtaking scenery, fresh sea air, impressive architecture, and above all, the friendliness of the Irish people. She is not the only one who is eternally grateful for that. Aeren Gerabmile Mahagot. When it's not always raining, there'll be days like this. When there's no one complaining, there'll be days like this. Everything falls into place like the flick of a switch. Well, my mama told me there'll be days like this. My earliest memory of my grandfather, the artist Sean Keating, is of walking in his garden, my hand in his. He is tall and bearded above me, wearing his habitual navy. His deep voice never lost its limerick accent despite living in Dublin most of his life. The smell of the dark tobacco he liked to smoke hung about him. This was in Ballyboden, where my grandparents had lived since the 1930s, in a home he designed on the site of an old water mill. We're on the way to his studio, down steps from the house, across the yard to a separate building flanked by a pear tree. 
There I'd sit on a stool as he worked and ask questions and watch his skilful hands with their long fingers and slightly flattened fingernails. Like me, he was left-handed, but had taught himself to change hands when his left became tired. I was fascinated by the different colours he used to paint the sea. The sea, he explained, is never just one colour. Even the bluest water is never a single blue, and a choppy swell can refract the light to various hues. He showed me how to rub out mistakes in a charcoal drawing with a piece of hard, stale bread. He'd a light trained on the canvas, and there was a high window, but the walls, with paintings and materials stacked around them, were in shadow. A born teacher, he once made a ballet dancer for me out of copper wire to show how to fashion the framework for a sculpture, and another time a charcoal drawing to demonstrate the differences between old and young faces. The smells of turpentine and linseed oil always recall me to that quiet studio. Both my grandparents appreciated trees. When they moved to Ballyboden, from their first home above Glencree Valley, they filled their garden with saplings, which were maturing by the time I was growing up. There was a story about my grandmother, May, going into a plant shop to buy some for the drive. In those days, the shop assistants, all men, wore top hats and winged collars. One observed, Ah yes, limes, very suitable for a gentleman's residence. She drew herself up, peered at him through her spectacles and asked, But don't you think that might be a little misleading? For my grandfather never claimed the status of gentleman. He was a painter, referring to himself as a craftsman. Anyway, he liked to challenge norms. In Tom's Who's Who of 1923, a catalogue of the great and good of the day, I was delighted to find under his entry, loves every kind of bodily and mental activity, paints what he sees, has no theories about art, recreations, Gaelic literature and music, swimming, rowing, chopping timber. Another early memory I have is arriving with my parents to find him up a tree, tying ropes to pull it down as it was threatening to fall on another. He must have been in his seventies at the time. Trees filled the garden, mostly broad-leaved, though I recollect my uncle showing me the blisters on a pine tree and the taste of the sticky, pungent sap. One magical moment I've never forgotten was on a walk in the wood with my grandmother when the foliage parted around a broad, hollow glade lined with flowering primroses. The sight and scent remain with me and probably fostered my own love of nature. May was an enthusiastic gardener. When they moved to Ballyboden, she made her vegetable garden on the site of the old mill pond, where the soil was rich with organic matter. It was her productive garden, coupled with his modest salary from the College of Art, that enabled my grandparents to feed their two young sons through the 1930s economic depression when no one was buying paintings. They even managed to look after other people, including a young Basque priest, Father Ramon Laborda, who lived with them for a while, fleeing Franco's rebellion, as it was known, in their house. May, who'd grown up in Spain, 
was at the centre of the tiny Irish anti-Franco movement. Sean was devastated by her early and sudden death in 1965. I can still see him hunched in an armchair the day after her passing, coming to terms with the loss of his life's companion. Thereafter, he was lovingly cared for by his son and daughter-in-law, Michael and Kitty, and their sons, and used to visit our family on Saturdays. A great storyteller and mimic, he would keep us all amused over long lunches. My mother adored her parents-in-law, and she and Sean shared a fondness for early classical music. In the 1950s, when she was a professional pianist, he painted her portrait as she practised for a broadcast, titling it Scarlatti. His drawing of Mozart hung beside her piano, and she would play Bach's Brandenburg concertos for him on the record player on his Saturday visits. I was studying in London in 1977 when he became ill. No longer able to paint, he didn't see the point in continuing. In hospital, he predicted to my mother that he would die on the winter solstice, and he did. He's buried alongside May and Michael in Crook Graveyard in the Dublin Mountains, above their Ballyboden home, which remains to this day an oasis of woodland among the burgeoning suburbs. On this morning's programme, we heard A Confession by Gerald Dahl. That was followed by The Wearing of the Green by Roisin Callender. Then we had Too Fruity for Words by Mary Dewey. That was followed by Mother Comes to Visit by Bernadette Buda. And our final piece this morning, My Grandparents' Garden by Carla King. The music today, A Fond Kiss sung by The Voice Quant. The Wearing of the Green, sung by Judy Garland. Then we had Libiamo from Verdi's La Traviata, sung by Luciano Pavarotti, Joan Sutherland and the London Opera Chorus. And our final piece this morning was Days Like This by Van Morrison. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to www.rte.ie slash radio one slash sun. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. Sunday Miscellany.